Welcome to our new video podcast, Dialogues with Meg Hansen. We will talk about all the important issues of the day, how they affect you and your family, and present fact-based solutions. Our show is about humility, being open to new ideas and perspectives, moral strength, and empathy as we tackle difficult issues and speak the truth. Dialogues with Meg Hansen, your home for real talk. And welcome to Dialogues with Meg Hansen, brought to you by the Ethan Allen Institute. We are a policy research and education organization based in Vermont. The goal of our podcast is to delve into the most consequential issues of the day with guests who are making meaningful contributions in their respective fields. The issues that we will examine are complex, and so I find it useful to adopt an interdisciplinary approach. What does that mean? It means looking at an issue using ideas from different disciplines and then making connections between these different schools of thought. It requires critical thinking to integrate these various insights, and when done successfully, the process inspires creativity. The result is that we come up with something new, a new way of understanding and solving the issues that we face. Steve Jobs described creativity as just connecting things, so a commitment to interdisciplinary conversations with critical thinking and creativity will set the tone for this podcast. Think tanks like the Ethan Allen Institute occupy an in-between space at the junction of the academic, economic, political, and media fields. Our work is about analyzing policy and crafting intellectually robust solutions. This is called knowledge production. I believe that it is essential that we connect knowledge production to public outreach using various media platforms. I also believe that we should dig deep into the cultural component of current affairs. We have to go deeper than policy prescriptions and examine society-wide events. We all create our culture together, and it belongs to all of us. We cannot let one group or one ideology monopolize our culture. The opioid epidemic, nationwide riots, mass catastrophic thinking like, oh my God, the world is going to end in 12 years, cancel culture, and COVID-related abnormal forms of crowd behavior. These phenomena have important psychological components that have not been examined. When we are not aware of what's really going on, then the solutions that we come up with are bound to fail. This view will inform our discussion today. The tumultuous changes that have rocked the American family over the past decades have taken a toll on all of us. As I researched the effects of chronic recurrent trauma, I learned about complex post-traumatic stress disorder or complex PTSD from Pete Walker's 2013 book called Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving and the 2015 book called The Body Keeps the Score 
Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma, written by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. I came across Anna Runkel on YouTube, who is a living proof expert in the field of childhood trauma and complex PTSD. Through her life-saving courses, popular YouTube channel called Crappy Childhood Fairy, and the growing online community, Anna Runkel translates theory into practice and has been helping thousands turn their lives around. In this episode, we will look at complex PTSD and the scope of its impact on our society. If we take American society as a body politic, then how is an epidemic of untreated complex PTSD affecting us? Can it explain to any extent the societal turbulence that we have been witnessing? Anna has a master's in public policy from UC Berkeley. When I reached out to her, she was very gracious and interested in talking about trauma at an individual level and connecting it with large-scale societal happenings and in making sense of these strange times in which we are living. With that, I'm honored to introduce Anna Rumpel to our show. Anna, welcome. Thank you, Meg. It is an honor to be here. To begin with, Anna, could you tell us what is complex PTSD and how is it different from the post-traumatic stress disorder that we all have heard about? That is such a good question. CPTSD has emerged onto the horizon uh, and Bessel van der Kolk, Pete Walker were two very big players in introducing the, the, the diagnosis to us. Now, as we are speaking in the United States, CPTSD is still not in the, the DSM manual and there's a lot of debate about whether and how to include it. And the debate from where I sit does not, they're saying, oh, we'll lump it in with regular PTSD, we'll lump it in with borderline personality. And for most of us who have uh, determined that we have it, uh, that doesn't, we don't, we don't agree with that and we don't worry about it at all. <laughs> so CPTSD, complex PTSD is a little different. Complex PTSD refers to trauma that happened not in an acute episode like a battle, but from on, ongoing chronic exposure to intense stressors. So that could be the little kid who lived in a village that was war-torn. It could be an adult who lived there. It could be a child or adult who lives in an abusive family. And these are the symptoms that I would say characterize it in the most important ways. Complex PTSD is an injury to the ability to connect with other people. We now know that much of that injury is neurological. It's not just psychological. It is psychological, it's social, it's cultural, it's relational. But that neurological piece was not acknowledged until recently. And that bit, that aspect of it is so important. What is the relationship between trauma and physical health, particularly chronic conditions, comorbid conditions, heart disease, diabetes, and obesity? Trauma in the formation years, childhood, changes the nervous system. And the nervous system, remember, includes the endocrine system as well as the immune system. And so we can now see this direct correlation between the number and intensity of traumas that happen. And that's very hard to index. I'll just say it. it's somewhat subjective, but in the best they can when they count it. Autoimmune diseases, cancer, heart disease, reproductive disorders, dementia, and learning disabilities, just about everything bad <laughs> that happens in life is exacerbated by trauma. 
to be raised after the loss of a parent also increases cancer rates, diabetes rates, obesity rates. How they found out about these connections between health and trauma was, this was back in the 90s, mid-90s, I think, mm-hmm. and at Kaiser Permanente, Dr. Robert Anda, Dr. Vincent Felitti, they were trying to understand why women in a clinic for extreme weight loss for women who were morbidly obese, they were having dramatic success. Women would lose weight Mm -hmm. and then they'd get to a certain point and they'd gain it back. And they were trying to understand why. Mm -hmm. And so they asked a thousand questions. And one of the questions was, were you sexually abused? And there was one question that popped up in the results that was extremely correlated with obesity and it was sexual abuse. 80% of the women in their program had been sexually abused as children. So then they hypothesized. They said, oh, well, so overeating and becoming morbidly obese must be a coping mechanism to make people not feel attracted to you. Well, I just want to point out that's a very outsider opinion, and I'm sure it's true in some cases. But, um, you know, just to go back to my college days in the 90s, what we called the male gaze, right? Oh, you just don't want me to have sex with you. That's why you have this problem. It's not about you. (laughs) And now we know there are endocrine changes. There are endocrine changes that that affect insulin production and affect how the hormone leptin interacts with insulin and that trauma can throw those out of whack. And if leptin doesn't respond in, in the right proportion to insulin spikes, then there's a sense of insatiable hunger and craving. And we know that trauma can trauma can cause that condition or make it worse. So there's things like that that have barely been looked into, barely been looked into. Not everybody who's traumatized will develop CPTSD and not everybody with CPTSD had equal trauma. And there's a lot to learn about why that is, why are people different? But as we can imagine, it has, you know, people are different. You're having difficulties and you go to a therapist, which is always what you would be advised to do. They would say, well, why don't you tell me about your trauma? Well, for a person who was abused or neglected as a kid, and I want to talk a little bit later about what a big deal neglect is. Neglect evidently can be even more harmful than direct sexual or physical abuse in cases. But if you were abused and neglected as a kid, you could go to all the therapy in the world <laughs> and it, you, you would feel worse rather than better in many cases. There are a few gifted therapists who've had success stories, but this old idea like you need to go talk to somebody. For people with post-traumatic, with CPTSD, talking about trauma can be re-triggering and can make them feel worse and unable to process information, unable to remember, unable to self-regulate emotionally. And that ends up leading to the feeling that you're no good, you're broken forever. And usually the therapist's point of view would be it's time to go get medication. And as it happens, medication, there aren't medications that are very well targeted for CPTSD symptoms at this time. And a lot of them that they give you, antidepressants, can actually disable the natural ability to get re-regulated. So where I come in is not in talking about what happened, which in my opinion is where way too much of the focus is. For the public health thing, it's all about kids. There's very little for adults. If there's something for adults, it tends to be focused on um, issues of racism or poverty, and those certainly can be traumatic conditions, but they're not the only ones. And so it's, it's, it's not very well targeted to where the problem really is. And I teach basically folk remedies that people can do themselves. When I say folk remedies, I'm not talking about herbs, but techniques of writing, resting, and changing your life and learning to follow um, 
a responsible way of living your life that most of us didn't learn at home to start clearing up the problems that do tend to pile up when you grew up dysregulated. And so that's what I teach and people are hungry for it. Dr. Vander Kolk, um, he, he talked about how um, what in the West, it's either medication or talking. Whereas um, in Asia, Africa, you know, what is known as alternative therapies, he calls them real therapies, which is connecting with your body, whether that's meditation, yoga, you know, being in nature. Um, he thinks that, you know, the alternatives are what Western medicine says, where you just keep talking on and on about it. Um, and then I think that, you know, your daily practice, and I'm sure you will share a little bit about it and the things that you, that you described as folk remedies um, help I think they really help because um, not only are you connected to so the so the the main problem what I what I understand is that you are disconnected or alienated from your own self and when you don't understand yourself then all the problems happen because then you don't understand boundaries you don't see red flags you don't understand toxic people you let everybody in and then as you said you know you're um, dysregulated or people call that triggered at work you have really uh, disproportionate reactions to things that other people just don't understand. So, so grounding yourself, um, grounding yourself using whether it's writing, meditation, yoga, there is there is definitely value in that. However, American medicine does not recognize that. Why do you think that's the case? Well, they're beginning to. Uh... I'll tell you that a lot of my clients are physicians, therapists, social workers, psychiatrists, mm -hmm. and they are just as traumatized as anybody else. And the trouble is people simply didn't know. They just didn't know. Mm -hmm. when, when a person who's not traumatized looks at a traumatized person, they go, well, that's so weird. You keep getting together with these unavailable or abusive partners. You know, let me tell you, let me educate you, you know, what you should do is get together with nice people. Goodbye. <laughs> and so with dysregulation, we start to understand, you know, now we know they've done MRIs, somebody who grew up with trauma, when they get exposed to a stressful situation and dating and courtship is a stressful situation, <laughs> it can be a crisis, you know, <laughs> it's very intense. It, it, it's, it can abruptly in a traumatized, a person who grew up traumatized in the formation years, the left front cortex will suddenly go quite dark and that's where reasoning is. Emotions will go way up. So that can lead to an impulsive relationship decision. It can lead to an impulsive outburst of anger. It can lead to very poor judgment and you combine that with difficulty with abandonment. Like I know this guy's a jerk. I hate him. I don't even like him. But if I leave, I know I'm going to go into a suicidal depression. Everybody is quick to address abuse for people who are already in it, but they won't address how do you stay out of those relationships in the first place. And how you do is, you know what? You don't have sex for a really long time because your red flag detector doesn't work very well. And while normal people may be able to do that, they meet the love of their life through a one night stand and then it lasts forever. That might happen to some people, but with trauma, it doesn't tend to happen. What happens is, you know, a, a huge sort of fantasy attachment mechanism takes over. It becomes crazy very quickly. And now you can't leave because your own fear of abandonment is keeping you, holding you prisoner. And I step in, I talk about how adults can deal with the signs of CPTSD. 
and uh, calm their symptoms. I'm not a therapist or doctor. I'm somebody who recovered from my own symptoms of trauma. And I read books and I studied and <laughs> I looked at this and all my life and in my career, and I worked in public health for a long time and in policy, I just kept noticing a huge disconnect between the way people talked about how we help people who are suffering and what it was like to actually suffer and how unhelpful I found so many interventions myself. And I had the good fortune to, to stumble into a means, techniques, philosophies that helped me recover. And so I've, for ever since I got started, I mean, the first three months after I first learned these techniques, I changed so dramatically that people wanted to know what I was doing. And I began teaching then. So I barely knew what I was doing, but here it is. That was 1994. And so I keep learning as I go. I was looking into um, trauma, complex trauma. So this is chronic recurrent trauma. And I read some articles from Stanford um, and Harvard and I was surprised to see that they were willing to talk about racism or the Holocaust, you know, large scale events, but they wouldn't talk about something as simple as divorce and what what is the effect of, of an ugly divorce on children, you know? So the point is, as you said, it's, it's individual trauma that then scales into, you know, um, communities, neighborhoods, towns, right? And so... It's, it's, I don't know why it's so politicized where some aspects, you know, we can talk about and, and we want to delve into, but the ones that really hit home, you know, I think we always hear this term, the kids are all right, but the kids are not all right. They're not all right unless you treat them right. I think that the fact that our childhoods affect us and that our patterns growing up often mimic what we had as kids, that's common knowledge. Everybody knows that. No, knowledge, though, does not heal it. And we have some confounding factors here, too, that are undiscussable in medicine or public health, which is hookup culture, uh, the breakdown of the family. For whatever reason, it's not okay to talk about the breakdown of the family. And losing your dad from being a parent to you is a huge trigger for CPTSD symptoms. Abandonment, neglect, like you said. Um, substance abuse disorders, like if your parent is an alcoholic. Um, I looked at a study that said 53% of Americans know someone in their family, like a close relative, who has an alcohol dependency problem. Um, and 43% of Americans were or have been exposed to alcoholism either um, growing up with an alcoholic parent or with an alcoholic spouse and partner. So um, when you when you put these things together, would you say that complex trauma, complex PTSD is pervasive in our society? It is. And I think that parental alcoholism and addiction is something that's widely accepted in many other things. That, that one's not taboo. Okay. Definitely. It's a, it's a traumatizer and it's not the drinking per se. It's that, it's that you're getting lied to about reality. You know, mom, I'm scared to get in the car with you because the way you're driving, it's like, oh, just get in the car. There's nothing wrong. Everything's great. And that's, um, <laughs> that's what trains people to do what I call crap fitting. You may have run into that. People love that word, <laughs> crap yeah. fit. We fit ourselves to crap, to unacceptable situations and people. And we get so good at it that we then grow up and we have this just raging blind spot when somebody mistreats us, doesn't care about us, is, is married and not available. Uh, is going to be a terrible boss. 
there's a blind spot there and a traumatized person, not every traumatized person, but CPTSD, this is a common trait, that when somebody comes in and mistreats you, instead of going, wow, they're mistreating me, I have to protect myself, get out of here, like a rational thought, you go, it's me, I'm causing this. There must be some magical way I can change this. And if you can't find it, you'll resort to thinking that it's a past life or you know, just uh, some, some mojo or something wrong, you know, that it's you, it's you. And it's this desperate desire, I think, to try to control why is this happening. And that can really turn on people. Now, for us in contemporary times, people understand the thing about, you know, obviously addiction, opiate, we have this huge problem and there is social support for that. But there isn't social support so much for not, for growing up without two parents or without two parents who are present to you emotionally, you know, without even one parent who's present emotionally. If you have, if you live with your dad only, you don't have a mom, that's one thing. If the mom is all, if the dad is always obsessed with work or always upset about a relationship with a partner or uh, cannot sit there and give what kids need, especially the little ones, they need that one-on-one time. It doesn't have to be all the time. Working parents have raised many wonderful kids. <laughs> but to give that one-on-one time where the kid says, uh, you know, I feel really bad about something that happened. Oh, tell me about it, what happened? Let's help you interpret that. The abusive family uh, is just one place. Like we're very accustomed to thinking of that as a source of trauma, but also living in a dangerous neighborhood, getting bullied, uh, constantly living in fear that something you say will get you canceled. Those are chronic stressors. And those indeed are things that can cause CPTSD. And I don't think you'll see that last thing I mentioned talked about. There's a big area that just doesn't get talked about with trauma um, because the public health establishment keeps pretty narrow constructs on on what counts as trauma and what can be addressed and i think that's largely dictated by what they know how to do and what they get funded for this postmodern culture we're living in has many good things in it and some rough edges on those things and one of the things that's good but has an ugly side is the monolithic culture of psychotherapy which is where all insurance dollars go so people are sort of naturally funneled there. And there, the culture of therapy and what's considered ethical and appropriate, there are a lot of things that are helpful for some people, but A, it's, it's very oriented towards talking, which we now know is not great for everybody with trauma. So mm -hmm. some, people are, some people have different modalities that accommodate that. But the other thing is, it doesn't focus very much on cleaning up your own side of the street. There's a lot of emphasis. It's very comfortable for people to talk about what their parents did, how that affected them, how bad it was. And I remember when I was younger, you know, I went to a lot of therapy before eventually I quit. I have lots of love and respect for therapists out there, but I didn't ever get help from that modality. And what it, at the time I was very traumatized, very, I was clearly, I had CPTSD, but there was no word for it. I was dysregulated. I was having very selfish, destructive relationships with men. I was treating people like they were my minions. <laughs> you know, I was crying all the time. I had dark thoughts that I just couldn't go on with life. And I was going to therapy three times a week and I would talk and talk and talk about it and about my mom and about my rough childhood. But it, then one day <laughs> I met a woman and the woman who taught me these techniques um, was a woman who had been a homeless kid on the streets and in her teens 
so drunk that she could no longer hold alcohol down and she had to get sober for that reason. She had been four years sober when I met her. She was a little younger than me, covered with tattoos, very rough. And I fancied myself to be, you know, on some higher station than her, but I actually had very grave problems. And I confided in her one night that I felt like I just, I couldn't live anymore. And she said, oh, I felt that way. Come in, have a cup of tea. And then she talked to me. She taught me these techniques. She would talk about God, um, you know, as a person growing up in the 80s and 90s in Berkeley, um, people who talked about God were completely uncool to me. But she had tattoos, so I could sort of be open-minded about it. But she showed me how she would write these fears and resentments on paper and ask for them to be removed and then meditate. And she showed it to me. And this funny thing happened. I got re-regulated. Now, remember, there was no such thing as dysregulation in the medical vernacular then. I, I had, I, I, this was precipitated, my, my really bad depression. I was attacked on the street randomly by a gang. I was beaten unconscious, bones broken. And they did a CT scan and they said, you're fine. Your brain is fine. Go home. You know, you're fine. And I wasn't fine. I couldn't read. I couldn't use a phone. I was really paranoid. I, I had a job, but I would say really inappropriate things like dark thoughts would just come out, you know, or I, was, I, I had classic signs of PTSD and I couldn't, and I was going to therapy. We were talking about it. And at that time, nobody could tell me this is PTSD. Uh, and so just thankfully this woman came along and these, these writing and meditation techniques addressed the PTSD and this problem where suddenly I couldn't read or focus or control my emotions. It just came right back. It took about two weeks. And not only had I like recovered from that sort of like losing it over, over this head injury I had and not having any support, but I became sharper and more focused than I'd ever been in my life. And I had always been a smart kid, but I grew up with a very rough family, a lot of violence in the house and fear and hiding. And so I had some, I had some difficulties, but all of a sudden my mind just went into sharp focus and I went from a low paying job got my master's at Berkeley. I mean, within a year, I was just like shooting like a rocket professionally because I had my wits back. And I, I was able to use the full um, capacity for thinking and intelligence that I all, always had, but could, didn't have access to because of dysregulation. I think everybody has that potential when they learn to re-regulate. So that happened. But I continued to have a lot of problems around relationships. And the mentors who I sought out over the ensuing years to help change my life um, there was an incredible priest. There was a 12-step mentor who gave me some very, very structured guidelines around dating so I could stop getting together with inappropriate people who were going to ruin my life, <laughs> which had been happening quite a lot. And um, some books I read and then some academics. I, I, I just was blessed to run into people who really knew something about how you change your life. And I did a radical transformation of my life from the sort of me feelings focused, what happened to me focused to like, why am I having these problems? And what do I need to do to change my life so that I stop having these problems? So today I'm often, when I'm working with a student, uh, what, I, what I first am usually dealing with is that they're heavily programmed with the idea that they're just hapless victims of these things happening to them. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for anybody to hear like brutally like, all right, enough about what happened to you. <laughs> Let's talk about what are you doing. And, and so I, I, my videos that are most popular are ones where I teach people. They say, oh, I, I attract narcissists. And I have all these little sayings. It's like, 
I attract flies, but I don't marry them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so the problem is that we marry them. The problem is that that's who we end up sleeping with and attaching with that horrible attachment wound and can't leave. So it doesn't matter how many people are screwed up out there. That affects us very little. What affects us is the choices that we make. It's not your fault you have CPTSD, but only you can actually change it. So you set up guardrails for yourself on how to go forward. And it's taboo. They, it's taboo to say that. It's, it's, I think a lot of people make their money as nonprofits, you know, as foundations, as think tanks even, based on the premise that some people are just so helpless they can't help themselves and other people are so wise they have to create social social conditions that will do it for them. And there's always some of that, but it's taboo to say there's a piece of it that only I can fix, only I can fix it. And so I've, I've butted heads some with, with public health establishment people. Um, I, I was teaching my techniques and it's a writing technique where you write your fears and resentments and you either ask your higher power to remove them or you release them if you are not higher power oriented. And then you rest in meditation and they published a thing saying I was dangerous and that people always need to do these things with the supervision of a licensed therapist. And that's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So it's taboo to say that people have the power within them to change many things about their life. And I totally agree that it makes sense to reach out for professional help because they're there to consult to us. They're there, they're there to assist us with their unique knowledge of how these things work and they can help sometimes. But there is very poor quality control and no transparency on what therapists really know trauma. You can take one workshop and say you're trauma informed. And that workshop could be by somebody who just goes, I don't know, they could just tell you anything, right? What does it really mean to be trauma-informed? So some people, some people are very poorly served by the establishment, and I would say probably most. Almost no one in this world can afford to have therapy on an ongoing basis, though. Come on, you know? And that's the beauty. You know, the pandemic introduced us all to doing more on Zoom and... And so I'm able to teach a class. I'll be teaching a class later today. And probably, I think, 500 people signed up. And they're from as far away as Pakistan, South Africa, Japan, you know, Colombia. Many, half of them will be from the US, many in Europe. Um, the timing is such that even Australians will be there. And people just come from everywhere. And they put in the chat where they are. And we all just go, isn't that cool? And then we all just get quiet. And we're sitting there writing what our fearful and resentful thoughts are and we're getting free of them. And then I answer questions and present this radical idea to people who are ready to hear it. You know, I, that, that, that we all have compassion and empathy for the abuse that happened to you. And now you are in a unique opportunity to get free of your limitations of this to the best of your ability. And I think the primary thing is to, is to change, is to become receptive to the idea that it's not all about what happened to you and who those people are who did it to you. It's about who are you? Can you be a light in this world? Do you have knowledge and love to bring into this world? And isn't it true that you always knew that you were meant for something greater? And people will begin to cry at that point when I remind them, didn't you always know you were meant for something greater? And everyone does know it. They weren't meant to be trapped under trauma or to be trapped under ideologies that are trying to persuade them that they will never be anything but a victim and other people are gonna fix it. It's just not, it's not really possible even, no matter how good-willed everybody is to fix everything for somebody. And some of it is when we begin to take our baby steps towards changing our lives from within. 
and it's hard and we need help. And I'm all for people helping each other. Uh, but there's a piece that has to come from here. And I think it's empowering. It's empowering. Mm, it gives us yeah. agency when we say we can make a difference, right? Yes. Yes. I want to share with um, our, our viewers and our listeners that I learned from Anna is that what happened to you when you were a child is not your fault. However, today, what you do with your life, that is your responsibility. And, um, you know, like the whole idea of talking about the past, I mean, you do it, you process it to a certain point, but it's really about taking you know, getting the driver's seat and taking control of your own life and saying, what can I do? What techniques do I have? What new mindset, new paradigm shift do I need so that I can live the rest of my life, not under the shadow of what happened to me as a child, but today, now, as you said, Anna, being, being a light um, and spreading goodness, uh, to, you know, in every dark corner that you, that you encounter. Light with boundaries. I'd say <laughs> boundaries. Boundaries are the other things. Uh, thing I've learned a lot more about by doing this work with others because I I learned a lot about myself from everything I learned from other people. But I used to think boundaries was a psychobabble word, <laughs> and that was just how that was a sign of how much I had to grow still. But a lot of people with CPTSD really struggle with that of knowing they people please or they, you know, I, Henry Cloud has a book boundaries that was very helpful to me some years ago. Um, and he points out that boundaries are a two way street. It's not just what you put up a barrier to keep out of your life. It's how you show up for the things for which you're responsible. So I pick up my kids on time. I don't let bad guys come, you know, touch my kids. Those are two, two, directions of a boundary to protect my kids. But I show up to pick them up on time. I feed them nutritious food. That's a boundary too. The, the taboos. One of the things mm -hmm. you said was hookup culture. Could you talk yeah. about that aspect, the hookup culture? I think there's a big generational difference right now. Like I'm in my 50s and from what my kids tell me, the stuff that I thought I was a really edgy bad teenager and my kids are pretty good kids by my standards. <laughs> There's stuff that's been normalized lately. I had a friend, for example, with a daughter who was at college and she came home from college and she used Tinder to hook up with strangers, different ones every day. And my friend was confused. She said, I, f I feel like that's not safe, but I know I'm just being puritanical. And I was like, what? To me, that just sounded like incredibly dangerous and psychologically a disaster. And, I ha and this, this is somebody whose daughter had mental health struggles. But the culture had become so permissive, they couldn't say anything about that. The high school in my town has, has had decades of problems with teachers having sexual relationships with students. And it's funny because despite all the, you know, sort of progressive ideology, like they, they can't really, they seem to not do a very good job with that. And I guess, you know, what I've learned is that any institution where adults have access to kids is vulnerable to sexual abuse of kids. That happens. But I just was shocked that uh, Berkeley High School would have all these problems where people knew, adults knew, and they didn't do anything. And I think that sometimes when it's too taboo to say, there are just some things sexually that you must not do. <laughs> it's not okay. It's never okay. And um, I think that soft attitude um, or people being afraid of seeming, um, you know, there's, there's, people here who are afraid that if they, if they say things like that, they've literally told this to me, people, they're afraid that people will think they're conservative. 
And that would be, you know, around in Berkeley, that would be like a bad person, right? So you're a bad person if you just sort of stand up for ordinary boundaries. Right. And that's where things get crazy. And so that's where I think we have sort of a toxic milieu here for CPTSD thinking to thrive. We have a lot of social taboos about looking at, you know, what's really correlated here. And one of the biggest things I know from when we look at poverty, poverty is not precisely correlated with trauma. You know, some people are poor and they do very well as people. And um, despite their economic conditions. Uh, But we know that not having people who love you and support you and not having your biological parents with you does have an impact. And not everybody can have their biological parents with them. But here's an example anecdotal in my life. So uh, 12 years ago or so, I visited Africa. Uh, I visited Kenya after there was a genocide, after an election. There was an election that was disputed, and and the losers didn't like it. And it may sound familiar (laughs) for things that have happened in our country, but where it went there is a warning for us. It turned violent, and the people who were on the losing side came after the people on the winning side. And though it was clearly known visibly because people were in different tribes, they look a little different. You know, they they know who they are. They live in the same town, and suddenly, people who had been neighbors for years, the people on the losing side of the election came after the others with machetes, and about a thousand people were killed. And in one, how some of the people died was in a church. A bunch of people ran into a church that was traditionally where you could go for safety. In a, in, some, in a violent situation. And 300 people were locked in there by the bad guys and they lit the place on fire. So how I became involved in this town was I ended up here in California meeting two kids who had gotten burned badly and who were here getting surgery. And it took about six years, but with the help of many people over here, including some of my friends and me, we, we helped them get established here. And then one by one, we helped their family get asylum here. And they're a lovely family and they're doing very well. And they have jobs that are not the easiest jobs or the best paying. But I, I went to each child's high school graduation. And, you know, when a kid graduates from high school, when I graduated from high school, I went to a party and got drunk. When they graduate from high school, <laughs> 200 people come, they kill a goat, they, oh. they uh, have a parade, they give hours and hours of speeches. There are gifts, everybody contributes, and the speeches are all exhortations like, respect your mom and dad, you've done an amazing job, look at all you've been through. And what I saw were happy, resilient, well-adjusted kids. And yes, sometimes like all people, they get depressed and they have a hard time. But after you know, their neighbors had attempted to kill them and you know, they had lost their scalp, their ears, their fingers, to be happy, resilient kids is such a testament to how different things can be when your family loves you, even when they had to be separated for six years you know, in different countries and very difficult circumstances. And so I think that experience was one of the things that taught me things are not what they are telling me it is and this could explain a lot about why it's so hard for people like me. Thank you for sharing that that amazing that amazing story. Let's talk about cancel culture and how it tears the social fabric. Vermont is a very small state with a little over 500,000 adults. According to a Wired Magazine article in 2017, Vermont has the most toxic online trolls in the nation. An important manifestation of this toxic online culture is cancel culture. 
you made a very important video about cancel culture, and we will post a link to that in the description below. Would you talk a little about the subject? I'll need to use social media. We don't all need to, but that's it. I'm not saying everybody should quit. The competition for um, getting attention on social media by saying angry things is a very maladaptive thing for a person with CPTSD. And, and I know that this is something you're looking at, like why are people getting so nasty? And yes, I think it does play a role. People with CPTSD are often very attracted to black and white thinking and extreme authorities. And boy, do we have that going on where, you know, there's a, some sort of ideology going around and either you're a hundred percent on board or you're a Nazi. And the threat of ostracization is so grave for any person, any human being, but for a person with CPTSD, it's untenable. And so I did a video some months back saying cancel culture is narcissistic abuse. And I got all these private notices, people who were afraid to even put it on YouTube saying, I, uh, I have been participating in cancel culture and I don't know how to get out because if I, if they find out I don't want to do it anymore, my friends, they're going to cancel me. And I thought to myself, that is a cult. That's a cult. People who have, who are struggling with um, CPTSD, are they the ones perpetrating this kind of, or are they more easily um, likely to become victims of this kind of toxic crowd behavior. They're part of both, but I don't think that they are solely responsible. When people do this, uh, when people do, I, th I think a lot of people are, are susceptible to, we've seen this over and over again in history, but it does seem like egregious authoritarianism come, flowers when people have been through a mass social trauma. Mm -hmm. I think we naturally crave, it's just like somebody just tell me what to do. This is all getting overwhelming. Just tell me what to do. But also I think for, for people with CPTSD, that belongingness that you can get from just conforming with what people demand that you believe, if you just conform, then you belong. That's, that's hard to resist. It's hard to leave. Mm -hmm. the, fear of, uh, the fear of people not wanting to be your friend anymore is more threatening than the average person. So the incentive to go along with it. But what I'm noticing about what's happening with this, um, this way that some people do this extreme vilification of other people publicly mm -hmm. without really without knowing what they're talking about and everybody piles on. I live in Berkeley, California. I've seen some pretty harsh stuff here that people do to each other. I think there are a lot more people who would like to speak up, but right now they're being terrorized. And this is, this is the sort of thing that will cause mass cultural PTSD and I don't think anybody's talking about it. You are allowed to trash people and accuse them of terrible things. You can do that online. And then there's all these things that you can't say because it's not convenient for somebody in charge. And, and, and that's crazy making. There's a lot more known about narcissistic abuse. This you know, crazy rationale that is at the pleasure of the person who wields tyrannical power over others. And everybody walks on eggshells and does things that are irrational till they get to the point that they can't even remember who they are or how they feel. We see those characters in films sometimes the mosquito coast or something you know where somebody is just like my way or the highway i know it's crazy but you have to do it and your survival depends on it but that's what i see going on culture-wide right now the public health institute refuses to acknowledge it i think they're participating in it the um I'm, did i say institute i mean institutions the institutional public health world is often participating in it and you're not allowed to mention it and i find that a lot of public health information about trauma 
is a little too closely as aligned with partisan politics. And if you look at the headlines uh, on a newsletter, for example, on a given day, just count, just count what proportion of things are actually agenda items of one particular party and not directly relevant to trauma. Mm-hmm. And you can, and then you can sort of guess who's funding that. Why are they? Why are they rewarded? How did, you know, why is it rewarding for people to work in jobs to ignore actual problems and focus on these other ones? And I would, I would just say, I, I, when I used to work in public health, where I, I worked with incredible saint-like people. I mean, it, there was so much, so much good there too, but, but I, I learned as a public policy person that people are human and they are not always conscious of their motivation. Then came COVID lockdown. And I think that made everybody's trauma worse um, because part of just, and I didn't understand this so well two years ago, right before lockdown, but having good relationships with people isn't just the fruit of healing. It's the agar in which healing takes place. Like you really can't, you can't heal this, this, injury to your ability to connect with people in isolation. There are some things you can do in isolation and some things you just have to get out there and try. So I teach people how to, how to manage a, a slow reintegration. A lot of people are having a hard time coming back out of the house right now. And so I call it titration. You do a little at a time and you come back and you re-regulate and you just acknowledge that was hard for me. I was really afraid what everybody was thinking. You know, <laughs> I saw some lawn signs and I felt upset. You know, it's like, okay, so you get your writing done about that. You do some rest. And then the next day you walk another block and try it again, or you go talk to your next door neighbor and you start to learn how to, how to be okay with a world that is triggering. And I don't really believe in exposure therapy as some sort of primary treatment for trauma, but it is, it is something like that. You have to, you just have to go deal and practice and the love of other people is like nothing else. Some people are so traumatized. They can only have relationships with pets and um, I encourage people if they long for human relationships keep trying keep trying and other people need it too so the the solution really then is to prioritize connecting with with the humanity of other people do you have any final thoughts before we Mm. have to wrap up our conversation what I found with 300,000 students around the world is that healing really is possible. Healing is possible. And what we do is we heal the symptoms of CPTSD and we leave it to the professionals to address other aspects of what happened. But the tools for the techniques I teach are a pad of paper and a writing implement and a place to sit. And the beautiful thing about these techniques is you can do it in the car, you can do it on a train. I used to do it on the BART, our subway here in the San Francisco Bay area. You can do it at your desk or while you're sitting in a business meeting and nobody knows what you're doing. And while that's technically not cool to do at work, if you can't focus your mind on what's happening in that meeting, and if you can just write for a couple minutes, you can bring your focus back, it's productive. And so I believe in the power of people having their own tools with them at all times that they can use to strengthen their ability to handle life as it comes. Because that's how we do it. That's how we get confidence is just beginning to know like, I know life is going to throw me some curveballs, but whatever happens, I'm going to know how to deal with it. I'll figure it out. And I have begun to have relationships with people who will help me if I need it. And that is success in life. That is confidence. I believe that everyone is endowed with gifts that are meant to be brought into the world for the benefit of everyone. 
And I think one of the biggest causes of depression that nobody talks about, this would be taboo. It implies that we were created for something. And that's not comfortable for everybody to think. But I would just say to anybody who doesn't believe that people are created, I would just say, but all the same, don't you know that you are capable of something so much more? I have found that there's a certain level of happiness that you can get from having money and from having a marriage and from having a home and being safe. That is, those are very important um, things to have if that's your heart's desire. But there's also a happiness that's not like anything else when you know you're doing what you're capable of doing, when you're bringing it and you get to see the benefit of what you can bring on other people. And that could be because you drive a school bus and you bring cheer to those kids. And it could be because you keep the, 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 the grocery store aisles clean and, and uplifting for people to visit. It could be because you're a therapist who has a real knack for helping people get to the heart of the matter. That could be, there. like we all have a role to play. And I think we're all suffering because an estimated 15% of the population is suffering under CPTSD and can't bring those, can't, put together the conditions where their gift can flourish. When you are struggling with life's basic problems, you can't really think about anything else. It's a very inward focused problem. And so for me, uh, I am delighted to have found, like when I talk about my experience and I teach about what I've learned about healing and I get letters from people and comments on YouTube, I feel like I'm sitting exactly in the, in the throne of my life where I always wanted to be. This is, I love this. And I don't even know what, what's evolving. I'm sure it will continue to evolve, but, but I feel so good about it. And I see now that all of my experience I was able to use. <laughs> but, <laughs> and uh, except for one thing, <laughs> but I used, to be a, I used to be a professional comedian. Even that was helpful. I used to be a video producer. I used to be a data analyst. So all of these things have been useful for what I'm doing right now. So it feels really good to do that. And I just encourage people who, who recognize that they need healing to do it, not just to feel better, not just to stop having problems with, with the people in their life. That's all important. Those are really important. But do it because the world needs you. The world is only waiting for you to come up and take your place and, and begin to bring what you were meant to bring to everybody. We need you. Every school needs the teachers who have that gift. Every hospital needs the workers who have that gift. Everywhere. We need the people who have those gifts. And that's the most important thing we can do to make the world a better place. Anna Ruckel, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, that was great. That was excellent. Thank you. A little policy, a little spirituality. Yeah, it was perfect. It was great. <laughs> We're going to now chop, 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 edit, and get it all done. Okay. Yeah. Yay. We will be posting links to your YouTube channel and website in the description below. I hope that your appearance on our show will introduce your voice to new audiences so that the important work that you are doing can be a blessing to thousands more. Thank you.